Section twenty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen seventy one, Eitart sixty two. In seventeen seventy one, he published another political pamphlet entitled Thoughts on the Late Transactions Respecting Falklands Islands. Footnote. It was published without the author's name. End of footnote in which upon materials furnished to him by ministry and upon general topics expanded in his richest style he successfully endeavoured to persuade the nation that it was wise and laudable to suffer the question of right to remain undecided rather than involve our country in another war it has been suggested by some with what truth i shall not take upon me to decide that he rated the consequence of those islands to Great Britain too low. Footnote. What have we acquired? What but an island thrown aside from human use? An island which not the southern savages have dignified with habitation. Works, volume 6, page 198, into footnote. But however this may be, every humane mind must surely applaud the earnestness with which he averted the calamity of war a calamity so dreadful that it is astonishing how civilized nay christian nations can deliberately continue to renew it his description of its miseries in this pamphlet is one of the finest pieces of eloquence in the english language Footnote. It is wonderful with what coolness and indifference the greater part of mankind see war commenced. Those that hear of it at a distance, or read of it in books, but have never presented its evils to their minds, consider it as little more than a splendid game, a proclamation, an army, a battle, and a triumph some indeed must perish in the most successful field but they die upon the bed of honour resign their lives amidst the joys of conquest and filled with england's glory smile in death the life of a modern soldier is ill represented by heroic fiction war has means of destruction more formidable than the cannon and the sword of the thousands and ten thousands that perished in our late contests with france and spain a very small part ever felt the stroke of an enemy the rest languished in tents and ships amidst damps and putrefaction pale torpid spiritless and helpless gasping and groaning unpitied among men made obdurate by long continuance of hopeless misery and were at last whelmed in pits or heaved into the ocean without notice and without remembrance by incommodious encampments and unwholesome stations where courage is useless and enterprise impracticable fleets are silently dispeopled and armies sluggishly melted away works volume six page one nine nine into footnote upon this occasion too 
we find johnson lashing the party in opposition with unbounded severity and making the fullest use of what he ever reckoned a most effectual argumentative instrument contempt Footnote. johnson wrote of the earl of chatham this surely is a sufficient answer to the feudal gabble of a man who is every day lessening that splendour of character which once illuminated the kingdom then dazzled and afterwards inflamed it and for whom it will be happy if the nation shall at last dismiss him to nameless obscurity with that equipoise of blame and praise which corneille allows to richelieu works volume six page one nine seven into footnote his character of the very able mysterious champion junius is executed with all the force of his genius and finished with the highest care he seems to have exulted in sallying forth to single combat against the boasted and formidable hero who bade defiance to principalities and powers and the rulers of this world footnote ephesians chapter six verse twelve johnson works volume six page one nine eight calls junius one of the few writers of his despicable faction whose name does not disgrace the page of an opponent but he thus ends his attack what says pope must be the priest where a monkey is the god what must be the drudge of a party of which the heads are wilkes and crosby sawbridge and townsend ibid page two o six end footnote this pamphlet it is observable was softened in one particular after the first edition for the conclusion of mr george grenville's character stood thus let him not however be depreciated in his grave he had powers not universally possessed could he have enforced payment of the manila ransom he could have counted it Footnote. Boswell, I suspect, quoted this passage from hearsay, for originally it stood, If he could have got the money, he could have counted it. In the British Museum there are copies of the first edition, both softened and unsoftened. This softening was made in the later copies of the first edition. A second change seems to have been made. In the text as given in Murphy's edition, the last line of the passage stands, If he was sometimes wrong, he was often right. Horace Walpole describes Grenville's plodding methodic genius, which made him take the spirit of detail for ability. Memoirs of the Reign of George III. For the fine character that Burke drew of him, see Payne's Burke. There is, I think, a hit at Lord Bute's Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir F. Dashwood, Lord Le Dispenser, who was described as a man to whom a sum of five figures was an impenetrable secret. Walpole's Memoirs of the Reign of George III, he himself said, People will point at me and cry, There goes the worst Chancellor of the Exchequer that ever appeared. Ibid.
End of footnote. This softening, which instead of retaining its sly sharp point, was reduced to a mere flat unmeaning expression, or, if I may use the word, truism, he had powers not universally possessed, and if he sometimes erred, he was likewise sometimes right. To Bennet Langton, Esquire, dear sir, after much lingering of my own and much of the ministry, I have at length got out my paper. Footnote. Thoughts on the late transactions respecting Falklands Islands, Boswell, and footnote. But delay is not yet at an end. Not many have been dispersed before Lord North ordered the sale to stop. His reasons I do not distinctly know. You may try to find them in the perusal. Footnote. By comparing the first with the subsequent editions, this curious circumstance of ministerial authorship may be discovered. Boswell. Into footnote. Before his order, a sufficient number were dispersed to do all the mischief, though perhaps not to make all the sport that might be expected from it. Soon after your departure, I had the pleasure of finding all the danger past with which your navigation was threatened. Footnote. Navigation was the common term for canals, which at that time were getting rapidly made. A writer in Notes and Queries shows that Langton, as payment of a loan, undertook to pay Johnson's servant Frank an annuity for life, secured on profits from the navigation of the River Way in Surrey. End footnote. I hope nothing happens at home to abate your satisfaction, but that Lady Rothers and Mrs. Langton and the young ladies are all well. Footnote. It was Mr. Chalmers told me, a saying about that time, Married a Countess Dowager of Rothes? Why, everybody marries a Countess Dowager of Rothes. And there were, in fact, about 1772, three ladies of that name married to second husbands. Kroger. Mr. Langton married one of these ladies. End of footnote. I was last night at the club, Dr. Percy has written a long ballad in many fits. It is pretty enough. Footnote. The Hermit of Walkworth, a ballad in three cantos, T. Davis, twenty-five shillings and sixpence. Craddock Memoirs quotes Johnson's parody on a stanza in The Hermit. I put my hat upon my head and walked into the strand, and there I met another man with his hat in his hand. Mr. Garrick, he continues, asked me whether I had seen Johnson's criticism on the hermit. It is already, said he, over half the town. End of footnote. He has printed and will soon publish it. Goldsmith is at Bath with Lord Clare. Footnote. I am told, says a letter writer of the day, that Dr. Goldsmith now generally lives with his countryman, Lord Clare, who has lost his only son, Colonel Nugent, Forster's Goldsmith. The Haunch of Venison was written this year, 1771, and appears to have been written for Lord Clare alone. Nor was it until two years after the writer's death 
that had obtained a wider audience than his immediate circle of friends. Ibid. End of footnote. At Mr. Thrale's, where I am now writing, all are well. I am, dear sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, March the 20th, 1771. Mr. Strawn, the printer, footnote, Gibbon, miscellaneous works, mentions Mr. Strawn. I agreed upon easy terms with Mr. Thomas Cadell, a respectable bookseller, and Mr. William Strawn, an eminent printer and they undertook the care and risk of the publication in square brackets of the decline and fall which derived more credit from the name of the shop than that of the author so moderate were our hopes that the original impression had been stinted to five hundred till the number was doubled by the prophetic taste of mr strawn hume by his will left to strawn's care all his manuscripts Trusting, he says, to the friendship that has long subsisted between us, for his careful and faithful execution of my intentions. J. H. Burton's Hume. See Ibid for a letter written to Hume on his deathbed by Strawn. End of footnote. Mr. Strawn, the printer, who had been long in intimacy with Johnson in the course of his literary labours, who was at once his friendly agent in receiving his pension for him, Footnote. Dr. Franklin, writing of the year 1773, says, Memoirs, An acquaintance, Mr. Strawn, M.P., calling on me after having just been at the Treasury, showed me what he styled a pretty thing for a friend of his. It was an order for £150, payable to Dr. Johnson, said to be one half of his yearly pension. End of footnote. And his banker, in supplying him with money when he wanted it, who was himself now a member of Parliament, and who loved much to be employed in political negotiation, thought he should do eminent service both to government and Johnson if he could be the means of his getting a seat in the House of Commons. Footnote. Hawkins, Life, page 513, says that Mr. Thrale made the same attempt. He had two meetings with the ministry, who at first seemed inclined to find Johnson a seat. Lord Stowell told me, says Mr. Croker, that it was understood amongst Johnson's friends, but Lord North was afraid that Johnson's help, as he himself said of Lord Chesterfield's, might have been sometimes embarrassing. He perhaps thought, and not unreasonably, added Lord Stowell, that, like the elephant in the battle, he was quite as likely to trample down his friends as his foes. Lord Stowell referred to Johnson's letter to Lord Chesterfield, in which he describes a patron as one who encumbers a man with help. End of footnote. With this view, he wrote a letter to one of the secretaries of the Treasury, of which he gave me a copy in his own handwriting, which is as follows. Sir, you would easily recollect, when I had the honour of waiting upon you some time ago, I took the liberty to observe to you that Dr. Johnson would make an excellent figure in the House of Commons, and heartily wished he had a seat there. My reasons are briefly these. 
i know his perfect good affection to his majesty and his government which i am certain he wishes to support by every means in his power he possesses a great share of manly nervous and ready eloquence is quick in discerning the strength and weakness of an argument can express himself with clearness and precision and fears the face of no man alive his known character as a man of extraordinary sense and unimpeached virtue would secure him the attention of the house and could not fail to give him a proper weight there he is capable of the greatest application and can undergo any degree of labour where he sees it necessary and where his heart and affections are strongly engaged his majesty's ministers might therefore securely depend upon his doing upon every proper occasion the utmost that could be expected from him they would find him ready to vindicate such measures as tended to promote the stability of government and resolute and steady in carrying them into execution nor is anything to be apprehended from the supposed impetuosity of his temper to the friends of the king you will find him a lamb to his enemies a lion for these reasons i humbly apprehend that he would be a very able and useful member and i will venture to say the employment would not be disagreeable to him and knowing as i do his strong affection to the king his ability to serve him in that capacity and the extreme ardour with which i am convinced he would engage in that service i must repeat that i wish most heartily to see him in the house if you think this worthy of attention you will be pleased to take a convenient opportunity of mentioning it to lord north if his lordship should happily approve of it i shall have the satisfaction of having been in some degree the humble instrument of my doing my country in my opinion a very essential service i know your good nature and your zeal for the public welfare will plead my excuse for giving you this trouble i am with the greatest respect sir your most obedient and humble servant william Storen, new street march the thirtieth seventeen seventy one this recommendation we know was not effectual but how or for what reason can only be conjectured it is not to be believed that mr strawn would have applied unless johnson had approved of it i never heard him mention the subject but at a later period of his life when sir joshua reynolds told him that mr edmund burke had said that if he had come early into parliament he certainly would have been the greatest speaker that ever was there johnson exclaimed i should like to try my hand now it has been much agitated among his friends and others whether he would have been a powerful speaker in parliament had he been brought in when advanced in life i am inclined to think that his extensive knowledge his quickness and force of mind his vivacity and richness of expression his wit and humour and above all his poignancy of sarcasm would have had great effect in a popular assembly and that the magnitude of his figure and striking peculiarity of his manner would have aided the effect but i remember it was observed by mr flood that johnson 
having been long used to sententious brevity and the short flights of conversation might have failed in that continued and expanded kind of argument which is requisite in stating complicated matters in public speaking and as a proof of this he mentioned the supposed speeches in parliament written by him for the magazine none of which in his opinion were at all like real debates the opinion of one who was himself so eminent an orator must be allowed to have great weight it was confirmed by sir william scott who mentioned that johnson had told him that he had several times tried to speak in the society of arts and sciences but had found he could not get on from mr william gerard hamilton i have heard that johnson when observing to him that it was prudent for a man who had not been accustomed to speak in public to begin his speech in as simple a manner as possible acknowledged that he rose in that society to deliver a speech which he had prepared but said he all my flowers of oratory forsook me i however cannot help wishing that he had tried his hand in parliament and i wonder that the ministry did not make the experiment i at length renewed a correspondence which had been too long discontinued to dr johnson edinburgh april eighteenth seventeen seventy one my dear sir i can now fully understand those intervals of silence in your correspondence with me which have often given me anxiety and uneasiness for although i am conscious that my veneration and love for mr johnson have never in the least debated yet i have deferred for almost a year and a half to write to him in the subsequent part of this letter i gave him an account of my comfortable life as a married man and a lawyer in practice at the scotch bar invited him to scotland and promised to attend him to the highlands and hebrides Footnote. boswell married his cousin margaret montgomery on november the twenty fifth seventeen sixty nine on the same day his father married for the second time scott's magazine for seventeen sixty nine Boswell, in his Letter to the People of Scotland, published in 1785, describes his wife as a true Montgomery, whom I esteem, whom I love, after fifteen years, as on the day when she gave me her hand. See his Hebrides, August the 14th, 1773, and a footnote. To James Boswell, Esquire, dear sir, if you are now able to comprehend that i might neglect to write without diminution of affection you have taught me likewise how that neglect may be uneasily felt without resentment i wished for your letter a long time and when it came it amply recompensed the delay i never was so much pleased as now with your account of yourself and sincerely hope that between public business improving studies and domestic pleasures neither melancholy nor caprice will find any place for entrance whatever philosophy may determine of material nature it is certainly true of intellectual nature that it abhors a vacuum our minds cannot be empty 
and evil will break in upon them if they are not preoccupied by good my dear sir mind your studies mind your business make your lady happy and be a good christian after this tristitiam et metus trades protervis in mare creticum potare ventis Footnote. Musis amicus, tristitiam et metus tradam, etc. While in the muses' friendship blessed, nor fear nor grief shall break my rest, bear them, ye vagrant winds, away, and drown them in the Cretan sea. Francis Horizodes, Book 1, 26, line 1, end of footnote. If we perform our duty, we shall be safe and steady, Seaway, Pear, etc. Footnote Horace, Odes, Book 1, Number 22, Line 5, into footnote. Whether we climb the highlands or are tossed among the Hebrides, but I hope the time will come when we may try our powers both with cliffs and water. I see but little of Lord Ellerbank. I know not why. Perhaps by my own fault. Footnote. Lord Ellerbank wrote to Boswell two years later, old as i am i shall be glad to go five hundred miles to enjoy a day of mr johnson's company End of footnote. i am this day going into staffordshire and derbyshire for six weeks footnote. goldsmith wrote to langton on september the seventh seventeen seventy one johnson has been down upon a visit to a country parson dr taylor and is returned to his old haunts at mrs thrale's goldsmith's miscellaneous works into footnote i am dear sir your most affectionate and most humble servant samuel johnson london june the twentieth seventeen seventy one to sir joshua reynolds in leicester fields dear sir when i came to lichfield i found that my portrait had been much visited and much admired footnote while miss burney was examining a likeness of johnson he no sooner discerned it than he began see-sawing for a moment or two in silence and then with a ludicrous half-laugh peeping over her shoulder he called out aha sam johnson i see thee and an ugly dog thou art memoirs of dr burney in another passage after describing the kindness that irradiated his austere and studious features into the most pleased and pleasing benignity as he welcomed her and her father to his house she adds that a lady who was present often exclaimed why did not sir joshua reynolds paint dr johnson when he was speaking to dr burney or to you End of footnote. every man has a lurking wish to appear considerable in his native place and i was pleased with the dignity conferred by such a testimony of your regard be pleased therefore to accept the thanks of sir your most obliged and most humble servant samuel johnson ashbourne and derbyshire july the seventeenth seventeen seventy one compliments to miss reynolds to dr johnson edinburgh july the twenty seventh seventeen seventy one my dear sir the bearer of this mr beatty professor of moral philosophy at aberdeen is desirous of being introduced to your acquaintance 
footnote. Johnson, wrote Beattie from London on September the 8th of this year, has been greatly misrepresented. I have passed several entire days with him and found him extremely agreeable. Beattie's life, end of footnote. His genius and learning and labours in the service of virtue and religion render him very worthy of it, and as he has a high esteem of your character, I hope you will give him a favourable reception. I ever am, etc., James Boswell. To Bennet Langton, Esquire, at Langton, near Spilsbury, Lincolnshire, dear sir. I am lately returned from Staffordshire and Derbyshire. The last letter mentions two others which you have written to me since you received my pamphlet. Of these two I never had but one, in which you mentioned a design of visiting Scotland, and by consequence put my journey to Langton out of my thoughts. My summer wanderings are now over, and I am engaging in a very great work, the revision of my dictionary, from which I know not at present how to get loose. Footnote. He was preparing the fourth edition. End of footnote. If you have observed, or been told, any errors or omissions, you will do me a great favour by letting me know them. Lady Rothers, I find, has disappointed you and herself. Ladies will have these tricks. The Queen and Mrs. Thrale, both ladies of experience, yet both missed their reckoning this summer. I hope a few months will recompense your uneasiness. Please to tell Lady Rothers how highly I value the honour of her invitation, which it is my purpose to obey as soon as I have disengaged myself. In the meantime, I shall hope to hear often of her ladyship, and every day better news and better, till I hear that you have both the happiness which to both is very sincerely wished by, sir, your most affectionate and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, August the twenty ninth, seventeen seventy one. In October, I again wrote to him, thanking him for his last letter and his obliging reception of Mister Beatty informing him that I had been at Annick lately, and had good accounts of him from Dr. Percy. In his religious record of this year, we observed that he was better than usual, both in body and mind, and better satisfied with the regularity of his conduct. Footnote. September the 18th, 1771, nine at night. I am now come to my sixty-third year, for the last year I have been slowly recovering both from the violence of my last illness and, I think, from the general disease of my life. Some advances, I hope, have been made towards regularity. I have missed church since Easter only two Sundays. But indolence and indifference has, sick, been neither conquered nor opposed. Present Meditations, page 104, into footnote. But he is still trying his ways too rigorously. Footnote. Let us search and try our ways. Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 40, into footnote. He charges himself with not rising early enough, yet he mentions what was surely a sufficient excuse for this, 
supposing it to be a duty seriously required as he all his life appears to have thought it one great hindrance is want of rest my nocturnal complaints grow less troublesome towards morning and i am tempted to repair the deficiencies of the night Footnote, present meditations page 101 square brackets 105 bustle end of footnote alas how hard would it be if this indulgence were to be imputed to a sick man as a crime in his retrospect on the following easter eve he says when i review the last year i am able to recollect so little done that shame and sorrow though perhaps too weakly come upon me had he been judging of any one else in the same circumstances how clear would he have been on the favourable side how very difficult and in my opinion almost constitutionally impossible it was for him to be raised early even by the strongest resolutions appears from a note in one of his little paper books containing words arranged for his dictionary written i suppose about seventeen fifty three i do not remember that since i left oxford i ever rose early by mere choice but once or twice at edial and two or three times for the rambler i think he had fair ground enough to have quieted his mind on this subject by concluding that he was physically incapable of what is at best but a commodious regulation end of section twenty